The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Uh, beginning today, teaching on foundations. So very foundational issues uh, in Scripture. Uh, obviously, I won't cover all things because that would take basically forever. Um, but we... W- we will, beginning today, cover a handful of issues that I think are uh, very important for our local body and just concerning truth in general. And I think today will be the most foundational um, of these foundations. Uh, this is the one you got to have in place, I feel. And again, I can't cover every nuance and detail and rabbit trail and all those types of things. Um, For example, foundations. What is God like? All right. Well, I'm not going to cover the Trinity because that could take a millennia, right? Uh, I believe in the Trinity. I believe God is one God, three persons. Um, I'm just going to more assume that, that that's an assumption we can all, you know. But either way, so section one as you see there, and hopefully this is, uh, you know, easy enough to follow along with. So, uh, but section one, as you can see there, God never changes. And then I got just a handful of verses. There's plenty of others, uh, but these are some of the more pertinent ones that stick out, in my mind at least, and that are very common uh, as well. So Malachi chapter three, of course, Malachi uh, the last book in the Protestant Old Testament, uh, Malachi three six here says, "I for I the Lord do not change." And by the way, uh, all the translations I have are from the New American Standard, unless it's otherwise noted there, as three as number three there, James one seventeen, the New English translation, uh, a very good literal translation as well. All right, Malachi three six. It says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. Well, that's good. The fact that God does not change works in our favor. Hallelujah. Because I hear it often. Well, he's the same God he's always been, so he's, you know, sending judgment on the nation and wiping people out. And Well, this says, because he doesn't change, We're not consumed. Hallelujah. That's a pretty good deal. All right. Uh, Another prominent scripture here, Hebrews 13.8. We all know this one. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that's important because as we're going to go on and see here, Jesus is, as scripture tells us, the exact perfect representation of God's nature, right? Jesus is a chip off the old block, right? So, and Jesus would tell us repeatedly in in all throughout the Gospels, I I don't say it and I don't do it if I haven't first heard Abba say it and do it. So they are uh, truly equal in every sense of the phrase, and that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And bad theology has made a lot of us think that 
the Father, God the Father, is kind of, to say the least, the grumpy one. You know, you got your parents and one of, you know, maybe dad's kind of the gruff, rough. He comes home from work and he's wore out and he's frustrated. And But mama bear's there to kind of protect. And, you know, and we play good cop, bad cop with God, with the father and the son. And, and thank God old Jesus came along and, and uh, let the father uh, blast him so he wouldn't have to take his anger out on us. You know, that kind of thing, which is just terrible thinking. Uh, and it, it creates a division in the Godhead and just so many other problems when the reality is Jesus didn't come to save us from his angry father, right? He saved us from sin. Sin was our problem, not Abba's anger problem. And so as we'll see here, this helps us in understanding Old Testament uh, scripture in particular and a lot of those types of issues. Um, nonetheless, uh, James 1.17, very, another very prevalent verse, very great uh, scripture. He says, all number three there under section one. He says, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. Hallelujah. That is good. I'm glad God doesn't change. You know, when you're perfect, you don't need to change, right? And it just so happens that He's really, really, really good. And so, He is goodness itself. So, if He did change, he hypothetically, He could only change into something less good because He is perfect goodness itself. So, thank God, our loving Father, our Lord Jesus, never changes. Hallelujah. Now, this is something I've observed over the years, and I think um, hopefully it'll make sense the way I wrote it down here. But check this out. Uh, under A, on your first page there, A, little subpoint, says, many people have the idea, and just it's a little wordy here, but I think it'll make sense. Many people, and I've been there, have the idea that because the Old Testament is first in order of the Bible, and the New Testament is second, that therefore the images of God portrayed in the Old Testament are somehow at least equal to, if not superior to, the images of God revealed in the New Testament. Thus, when people read the New Testament, they don't understand how to square the loving image of Jesus with the often less than loving image of Yahweh in the Old Testament. And all too often, they unfortunately default to the Old Testament images of God and try to make the God revealed in the New submit to and line up with the often unchristlike image of God in the Old. That's wordy, but does it make sense at all? <laughs> okay. But in reality, this is completely backwards. The biblical teaching is that all images of God in Scripture, and not to mention in personal prophecies, dreams, visions, etc., must, page 2, must bow down to and be subservient to the image of God perfectly revealed in the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
And then we'll look at some scriptures here that help us better understand that. So point B there, in light of this truth, we can much better understand the relationship between the Old and New Testaments and thus how to better over, uh, overall understand and interpret Scripture and thus better understand the true nature of God. And with this truth in place, we can read the Bible without being scared to death of the God who is perfect, uh, eternally perfect love. Wouldn't that be amazing? Holy hallelujah. And, and a lot of damage has been done by uh, even when the early settlers came to this country with all their good intentions and with all the good that was done. There were still terrible things that happened. Uh, there, there's a, I, I forget all the details at this point, but there's a, a great account of where um, some of the Europeans encountered some of the, quote, savages, you know, the natives, savages as they would think of them and often refer to them. And, well, what do we do? And they actually went to the ministers. And the ministers read some Old Testament accounts of where, okay, God said, wipe out every man, woman, and child. Well, that must mean that it's okay for us to do it too. And so they did it. And they used the Bible as their... You know, you can, as we as we all know, we can make the Bible say and mean anything you want it to. You know, I mean, you can do that with virtually any piece of literature that that has a lot of content in it. Um, but that mentality, just to, well, that happened back then. It happened first before Jesus came along and seemed nice. But really, that stuff, without, we'll see how far we get and all that, didn't really happen first. What happened first was God created man and man, male and female, in his own image, put them in a garden of Eden, which literally means pleasure, a guard, the garden of pleasure, and said, it's all yours. As a matter of fact, everything that's here is yours, but I want you to take this dominion and go on out beyond this garden and make it look like heaven on all of the earth. But by the way, there's some fruit over there that's not good for you. Just don't eat that. And that wasn't some mean rest. That's like you tell your kid, don't put your hand on that stove. You know, oh, okay. That's about the first thing they'll do half the time, right? You know, any stove victims around here? Probably all of us, yeah. Huh. And, uh, you know, the, the law, Romans 5 and Romans 3 tell us the law provokes sin. So, you know, you put a friend of mine, uh, really my dad's friend, on his way to work every day for umpteen years, 10, 20 years, you know, he, he would drive down this sort of back, curvy, farm road type area to get to his job, and there were chickens there. I think it was chickens. And he never thought twice about all those chickens. But one day, he'd been driving there for 10 years, whatever, every day. There was a big sign out there that said, please do not blow your horn at the chickens. He had never even thought about blowing his horn at the chickens. Guess what? <laughs> And I would bet with a smile on his face, you know. I probably would. If that, you know, that would probably be my, you know, blow the horn with a smile on my face and a glow in my heart. You know what I mean? Just, But he never thought about it. But Romans 3 tells us that by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then Romans chapter 7, uh, Paul is very clear that the commandment came so sin, five, Romans 5 and 7, the commandment was given so sin would increase, right? And so, 
that wasn't God's original plan. That wasn't God's uh, first plan. His first plan was his sons and daughters because the gospel of Luke said Adam was the son of God. God's plan was always to have a family of sons and daughters, you know, not outsiders looking in, but people who belonged at Abba's table when the dinner bell rang, you know, and that would have been everyone. And, of course, God graciously gave man freedom to choose and, and inherent in that capacity is the potential for failure, mistakes, etc. But thank God uh, Jesus is bigger than even that, right? And so, anyways, this helps us with a lot of understandings. And um, uh, let, let's turn over here to what are we on page three here, and this will really help uh, bear some of this out. I think. All right, section two. How, now, this is so important. I did a long series on this uh, sometime a year or so ago, and then I had to stop in the middle of it. Uh, health stuff cropped up at, at that time, and but but we had got a good ways into it, anyways. But um, this is really a, an undergirding foundation of how we believe and approach things here. Uh, so, number four here, a quote from St. Augustine. Here's what St. Augustine said. He said, To the Old Testament belongs more fear, just as to the New Testament more delight. Nevertheless, in the Old Testament, the new lies hid, and in the New Testament, the old is exposed. Or, as it's more commonly said, the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. That makes sense, doesn't it? And then here are several portions of Scripture here that really bear this out. And this can really change your life in how you, what you believe about the nature of God. Um, because you got to, th- you know, when you, I'm sure we all have, but when you think about these things beyond the surface level and really, you know, try to find, you know, some real answers to these things, um, what we're doing here is very, very helpful on these issues. Because, um, in you know, you read Joshua, and if you read the book of Joshua, there's accounts, I believe chapter 6, where Joshua believes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wants him to go in and murder every man, woman, and child. And there's other places where that happens as well in, in the Old Testament. But then you've got Jesus, who is God, the God who never changes, and he says, let the little ones come to me. Right? And so, if he never changes, and he says, let them come to me, somebody's not correct here. Now, there's a lot that gets into that, and I believe Joshua was sincere, and st- you know, all that. Um, and that doesn't, let me say, that does not undermine the inspiration of Scripture. That doesn't for a second make me think, oh, well, it's, no, that's, it's inspired. We're, it's inspired. We're getting what Joshua really believed and what really happened, right? Does that make sense? Uh, but we always compare it against the backdrop of the unchanging, eternal nature of the God who is love, who never changes, and that way we can uh, work through these things. And there, there's many other examples of stuff like that, um, and, and this stuff will help us with that. So anyways, all right, uh, A, here on section 2, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, 
It says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food and drink. Now, this is talking about the Jewish dietary laws. Food and drink, or in respect to a feast day or a festival day, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Now, notice this. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, the form, belongs to Christ. So all those things in the Old Testament serve a purpose when they were right and when they were wrong. Part of the, part of the purpose of the inspired Scripture, uh, very often in the Old Testament, is that we are supposed to judge it against the backdrop of Jesus. And so part of the purpose of inspired Scripture sometimes is to show us what God is not like just as much as what He is like as revealed in Jesus. Does that make sense? If these things aren't true, then God is a maniacal, schizophrenic lunatic. Because one day it's come to me, whosoever will. The next day it's murder the women, babies, children. Oh, but keep some of the women for yourselves as sex slaves. You know, these aren't just little minute semantic differences. But this helps us to, to believe Believe in our Old Testament from a proper perspective so we don't have to be afraid of it. So I can read those accounts and I can say, yes, they actually believe that. They were, and there's many issues where they, were, where they were inundated with the religious cultures of those surrounding them and all sorts of stuff going on. Their, their own, Israel's own constant rebellion. I mean, many factors were at play in these issues. Um, but one thing we can bank on is that according to Jesus, God in the flesh, God is like him. And then just read the Psalms. The Psalms, from one Psalm to the next. Yahweh, I will praise you forever. Bless the Lord forevermore. All you his holy angels, sing him, praise him. He has delivered us. He is ever faithful. He is ever true. Next one. God, you have abandoned me. God, you have left me. God, you have turned against me. God, you are anger at me. God has left us all to our enemies. It's like kind of like we do in a day. You feel on top of the clouds one minute with God, and ten minutes later your car broke down and you think God's left you, or whatever, right? Or your, your plumbing goes haywire on Christmas Day. I mean, you know, you just think God's left the scene here, whatever, you know. But that's there for a reason. We can see ourselves in those things. You can see human frailty and human difficulty in struggling through life and struggling through these thoughts and emotions and, uh, and these types of things. And that's good for us to see those things. Even David, the most highly esteemed king in all of Israel's history, was a little up and down, to say the least. And kind of makes you feel not so bad about your own stuff, doesn't it? Does me. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, but not the very form of those things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So notice again, the law is only a shadow of the good things, but not the very form or substance. So what is? Well, the Colossians verse tells us there, the substance belongs to Christ. Hallelujah. Now here's an interesting uh Account here, John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. Um, Jesus, talking to the religious leaders, says this. 
You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And yet, these are they which testify of me. So, Jesus tells us explicitly here, that's how you read the Scriptures. You find Jesus in them because that's the purpose they serve. They testify of Him. And one of the common phrases for that is typology or types and shadows, right? And so, we look for Jesus, like with Noah and the ark. We see the ark that protects mankind. You know, and there was one door to enter the ark. Well, Jesus, in John 10, Jesus called himself the door. And so Jesus is the doorway into God's salvation. And the ark, while it's taking the beatings and the brunt of, you know, the, 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 the flood, the storms, the winds, the waves, you're inside the ark. And you may stumble and fall, but you're still in the ark, baby. Amen? I mean, just on and on. Um, even people, not just the accounts, but, you know, uh, people. You know, there's many different. Uh, you think about uh, the Exodus account in Exodus chapter 12. The Lord tells, tells them that the death angel is going to come through, and that was not an angel of God. Uh, the death angel is going to come through. God's not in the murdering business, and he certainly is not going around murdering babies, for crying out loud. Uh, Brother Hagen actually teaches this in his book, uh, Keys, to, Keys to Scriptural Healing. And I actually have the audio series where he got that from. Uh, and he goes into more detail about it and uh, talks about, like in Exodus 15, 26. Let's um, just do you here. This would be helpful. Exodus 15, verse 26. Somebody beats me to it. Feel there we go. Okay, Exodus 15, 26. Check this out. This, is, this will be very helpful says, and he said, this, the Lord, and he said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your, your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Now notice this. I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Well, the God revealed in Jesus doesn't give anyone sickness ever. He only healed the sick. And the good news is we know from the translation here in the Hebrew compared to the English uh, translating this, they didn't really have a way to express the permissive sense, which is what it should be in the Hebrew. Instead, with the, you know, there's dif difficulties in translating languages. Um, they had to put it in the causative sense. But uh, any of you ever heard of... Uh, uh, Young, Young's Analytical Concordance, Young's Concordance. Dr. Young actually wrote about this as an example of that very problem in Hebrew to English translation. And he says, this the, the literal accurate reading would be, I will not allow any of the diseases to come upon you which I allowed to come on the Egyptians. So it wasn't God actively putting diseases on anyone. He was telling Israel, if you obey me, which is faith in action, I can withhold these things from coming upon you, unlike stubborn Pharaoh who keeps fighting against me, and I respect his will as too, and thus my hand will be pulled back, and by his, ignorant or not, his willingness, it will come upon 
the Egyptians, right? And so many examples of that. First Samuel, there's a verse in First Samuel, oh man, 16-ish somewhere, I'd have to look, um, where it says that an evil spirit from the Lord would come and torment King Saul, but only when David would play music. You know, anointed worship music's powerful. And uh, that, that demonic spirit would alleviate him. Same thing. In the Hebrew, it does not say that. It does not say the Lord is the one causing that or having anything to do with that. It's Saul's own blatant disobedience and rebellion that was opening him up to a demonic spirit to come and torment him. So, very important. I mean, it's a big deal, right? You read those things. One day you got Jesus who claims to be God who never changes, who loves and heals. And over here you got God murdering people and killing babies and commanding us to kill babies. And I mean, just, you know, how do you work through these things? Well, this is a helpful foundation with which to do that. All right. And this is nothing new, by the way. The early church readily taught and understood these things. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of Western evangelicalism um, harps on the different approach that if, if it literally says it, then I don't care how it, if it contradicts one verse or another, I just literally believe it. And that, that sense of over-literalism that never really existed in the church until really until evangelicalism 18 and 1900s came along. Um, anyways, I, I'm, is this okay? I know I'm bouncing around in this, but I hope this helps. This helps me, man. It's hard to love a God who is telling people to murder babies. And then we're supposedly supposed to go and picket abortion lines and save the babies, which I'm fine with. But it's like, well, wait a minute. One day you're personally murdering them yourself or at least telling us to go and do it, and then the next day we're supposed to stand against it. That means being a good Christian. Which is it? <laughs> you know. And so these really help us work through these issues profoundly. At the end of the day, God is good, period. Hallelujah. I've heard for decades about this supposedly angry God, but I thankfully, I've never personally met him. He's never revealed himself to me as an angry tyrant, as this mad, ferocious, frothing at the mouth, bloodthirsty God that he so often portrayed as being. And thank God, the only God I've met is Jesus. And he is love. Hallelujah. Check this out. Luke 24, 25. Uh, D, under section 2, page 3. D. And uh, this is the road to Emmaus. You guys will be familiar with this. Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. It says, Jesus... Uh, walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and or that's I put that in there. Jesus walking with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he said to them, "O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets." Turn over to page four there. Uh, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. So how did Jesus read the Bible? Well, in John 5, he said, you think you find eternal life in them, but you don't because these are their purpose is to point to me and you won't come to me, a person to have this eternal life. And then here, similarly, he reads Moses, and it says all the prophets. So think about that. 
Hosea, Habakkuk, Nahum, Obadiah, Malachi, on and on, Daniel, all, all, the, all the prophets, Samuel's ministry, Moses' ministry, Joseph, all of it. These are real people with real historical events, but they point to a greater reality named Jesus. Amen? That's the right way to read the Scriptures. Hallelujah. You're talking about a Bible study that would have been great to attend, man. I'd have liked to have been on the road with those fellows. All right, next one, still in Luke 24, but this time talking to his disciples. And, and there were some other people there as well. Luke 24, 44 through 45. It says, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things... Uh, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses. Anybody ever read Leviticus? Don't you just get so excited and jacked up to read Leviticus? Jesus is, it's just amazing how the types and shadows. You know, in, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 10, you have Aaron and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu. And it says that they put foreign fire, strange fire. And then a fire came out and consumed them. And then the, in a New Testament shat type, you know, type and shadow, and then in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. They have a similar account. And I don't think the Lord killed any of them. It doesn't say the Lord. Uh, you read Ananias and Sapphira. I, I won't get into that right now, but um, they certainly opened themselves up and were destroyed. Now, um, about me in, in uh, let's see here. All the things written about me in the Law of Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. That's something good to pray for. And he said to them, Thus it is written, so notice that, Thus it is written that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So according to Jesus, who is the Word of God, His commentary on the Word of God is that the Old Testament clearly teaches the Christ would suffer and rise again from the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And many could read that and say, well, I didn't know all that was so spelled out back there. But according to Jesus, it is. So if Jesus has an opinion and we have a differing one, who's right? Jesus. Let's see here, 45. Yeah, I think I left verse 46 and 47 off the notes there. On E there, so if you want to add that, you can. I put 44 through 45. It's actually 44 through 47. So just noticing that there. Um, anywho, and again, of course, we recognize many of these things, like um, the animal sacrifices. Um, obviously, Jesus was the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who took away. He actually really dealt with sin. Atonement basically means to cover. And so Jesus didn't cover our sins. He actually dealt with sin and took it away. He went to the root of it, uprooted it, died it away. It's gone, right? And so he dealt with it. And uh, 
Obviously, Moses. Moses said of himself in Deuteronomy, I think, chapter 8, um, 8 or 18, I think, chapter 8, he says that the time will come when Yahweh will, ra will raise up a prophet like unto me, and whoever doesn't heed his words will be destroyed. And so, um, so Psalm 22. Psalm, you guys, you guys know Psalm 22. Let's just uh, let's turn there real quick. I'll show you. It's not in your notes there, but um, another great example here of how we read Jesus in the Old Testament. The way I like to say it is the Scriptures are the inspired word. I mean, you could say it a few different ways, but basically, Scripture is the inspired word that points us to the living, infallible word, Jesus. Because as John 1 and 1 John 1 tells us, and Revelation, He is the Word of God. So Scriptures are the inspired, it is the inspired Word which points us to the living, infallible Word, Jesus. Um, Psalm 22, and this one will be a rather obvious. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You heard that somewhere? On that cross, right? But he goes on and answers the question. We won't read all of it, but we'll just read a few parts of it here. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, my groaning. Oh my God, in the day I cry in the daytime, but you hear me not. And in the night season, but you are silent. But you are holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Look at verse 6. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted that the Lord would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing that he delighted in him. They mocked him on the cross about that. You know, if you're the Son of God, let him deliver you. Um, let's jump down here to 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset, round about, beset me round. They gaped about me like a roaring lion. The next verse, poured out like water, bones out of joint, heart like wax. All right, so, so clearly Jesus is going through all the terror he was going through here. But jump down here. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither has he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. So in other words, on the cross, Jesus, just as we all do sometimes, felt like God had abandoned him or was nowhere to be found. But then he gives us the truth. Thank God what you always feel isn't true. <laughs> you don't even feel saved half the time, right? But thank God it's not about how you feel. It's about, it's about We walk by faith, not by sight. So even Jesus, in our place and on our behalf, entered into the utter depths of despair, darkness, sin, and death for us, and he truly felt all the brokenness and loneliness and hurt and abandonment and rejection that we feel. 
He, he truly cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But thank God the answer comes clear in verse 24. And it's true for all of us. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. So you can feel like God's hiding, playing hide and seek, but he's not. Thank God. But when he cried unto him, he heard. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad? Amen. I got to move on here. Let's get back to our notes here. Uh, F, I'll be as quick as I can here. Matthew chapter 12. Another example of how Jesus looked at Scripture. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered to them and said, An evil and adulterous generation uh, seeks a sign or craves a sign, and yet no one, no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three Days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And you know, small wars have been fought over whether Job and whether Jonah were literal historical events or whether they're just allegories or, or a little bit of both, some combination, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I kind of like Jesus' approach here. Jesus bypassed that whole, was it literal history or is it allegory or some combination? He just said, look, that's really missing the point. It is inspired scripture. It's part of the canon. It's part of the word of God. And what's its purpose? As always, it points to me. Read Jonah and find Jesus in it. Hallelujah. Find not that old stale manna that, that was falling but the true and living manna, which Jesus said he himself is. He said, I am the true bread which comes down from heaven. So, you know, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we want fresh manna whenever we, you know, you want to be fed. You feed on God's word, right? And so uh, Jesus is the living bread, the fresh bread, served up hot and fresh every day, baby. and will feed and nourish your soul when you find Jesus in it. Amen? Can you imagine? Just, I mean, just take your pick. I don't know. Uh, what, what book do you... Okay, well, Kara, Kara trembles at the thought of reading Leviticus. She just... For, I feel that way about the book of Numbers. book of Numbers has a lot of cool stuff in it, but it's got a lot of numbers in it. <laughs> and it just kind of wears... You know, those... Oh, there's just all the numbering of the tribes and the, and the everything. It just wears me out, just to be honest with you. But you know what? If read correctly, we can find Jesus in it. Isn't that amazing? Samson, Samson had a, an incredible life, incredible rise, incredible fall, incredible restoration at the end. But at, at undergirding it all is where can I find Jesus in Samson? Does that make sense? And so Samson, there's a lot of stuff we could say about it, but he had a very supernatural grace and anointing on his life. Well, we all do. You, you, there, you know, there's different ways to approach it. Uh, at the end of Samson's life, you know, he 
his hair was just starting to grow in a little bit, and he asked, you know, he wanted to be set up on the two pillars, and one last time, God renewed his supernatural strength, and he pushed out those big pillars, and his arms were outstretched. Samson defeated his enemies. Well, that's type that's typological. That's a type and shadow of how Jesus, with outstretched arms on the cross, defeated the great enemy. Amen? And so, you know, that makes the Old Testament come alive, makes it fun, makes it enjoyable, and makes it, frankly, not so scary. <laughs> Hallelujah. No, you go into bed, it's like, I want to read read the Word a little bit before I go to bed. Would I rather read something nice in the Gospel of John or some, some bloodthirsty murder, something going on over here? You know, you know, eh, okay. So, you know, you get the point there. But you find Jesus in it. And the beautiful thing is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are in Christ. Christ is in us. So when I find Jesus, I'm finding myself. His death was our death. His victory was our victory. So when I find him, I find myself. L look at King David. King David, whose name means beloved, and obviously David means beloved. Jesus, Abba said, this is my beloved son. Ephesians 1 says we are in the beloved. And so David defeats Goliath and then uses his, at the end, uses his own weapon against him. I use that example a lot. It's, it's a great one. You know, he had five stones. Five is the Hebrew biblical number for grace. And then he used the one stone in particular. Well, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. All right? Hits, hits him, you know, right there. Hits him in the old mug. And Genesis 3 tells us that the seed of the woman, which is the virgin birth, the Messiah, would bruise the head of the serpent. All right? So we see a typological fulfillment of that in David and Goliath. But then he takes his own sword off with his head, right? Well, Hebrews 2 says that Jesus used Satan's own weapon against him, death. That through death, he defeated him, Satan, who had the power of death, right? And so all those things, uh, just beautiful. It just makes the Old Testament come alive. Ugh. And just like the, these, the, the two on the road to Emmaus, it says, did not our hearts burn within us? You start seeing Jesus in those laborious, lots of numbers, lots of all these details about how to, how to cut an animal open the right way and, and who gets which piece of land and the priests get none, but they get a few things here and there. I mean, it starts giving life to those things. It's beautiful. Doesn't mean I'm thrilled about reading numbers necessarily, but I know I can get more out of it than just a literal, here's the numbers, here's what happened. No, Jesus is in all that. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 5, trying to wrap this up here. Bottom of your page there, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened. You know, that's like Paul in Ephesians, whenever he says they're already in Christ, and he, t and he has to tell them in chapter 4, put off the old man, put on the new. You're not made for that old man clothing. And he was correcting their behavior. There was a guy who didn't want to work and uh, was lazy and stingy and, you know, stealing, all this kind of stuff. And Paul addressed it the right way. He didn't say, well, you're not, a, you're, not a, you're, not, you're a sinner. You're not a Christian now, blah, blah, blah. He said, no, you are a new creation. You just don't really believe it or grasp it yet. Therefore, you're not acting like it. Put off that old man. Those clothes, like like King David, he tried on someone else's armor. 
it didn't fit. You can't live out somebody else's calling and grace. God has handcrafted his own grace for each and every one of us, right? And so put off the old man and put on the new. Those that new cut that new creation clothing, that'll fit you perfectly. For you know what I'm saying? Same thing here. He says, so that you may be a new lump, uh, but really you are a new lump. You just don't get it yet. You know, that type of thing. Then he says this, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So when I read Exodus 12 and I see the Passover, Jesus is the Passover. And we know that. We know they, they were to eat the whole lamb, and then what did they do with the blood? They put it, and from what we understand, basically like a, the, a sign of a cross on the door, the top, the sides, the lintel, side to side, top, you know, on, the, on their doors, the Israel, while they were in slavery on the night of the Passover. Jesus is our protection from Satan, the destroyer, right? And so, so Paul read the Passover, he saw Jesus. And we know that that's what Jesus himself said. Because when Jesus sat down and turned the Passover into the Holy Communion, the Eucharist, uh, and brought it to its fulfillment, like we celebrated this morning here, um, Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And, and there's a lot of other details that get into that, um, but got to move on. Lastly, section three, and I'll be as quick as I can here. This is so good. This, this sort of sums up everything we've already said, and this will give you a solid foundation and undergird uh, for it. Section three, God, that is Father, Son, Spirit, is eternally like Jesus. Matthew 11, 27, Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Then look at this. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And to anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him, which is available for anyone, whosoever will. But notice what Jesus said. No one knows the Father except the Son. And you read your Old Testament, and you got Abraham sitting under an oak tree in Mamre, eating a meal with God. You've got the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, appearing to many people throughout the Old Testament. Read Isaiah in his account and seeing the glory of the Lord in the temple. On and on and on and on. And yet, in other words, by their limited, uh, you know, as, for, as Paul says, we see through a veil darkly. You know, if it's shadowy and dark and, and overcast, but and if it's really foggy and, you know, you might be able to see a few things here and there, but you don't have open, plain sight. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and that's comparable to what you could make this. They had certain insights about God, but no one had the true and full revelation. He says this, No one knows the Father except the Son. Now, the word know in Greek means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know thoroughly, to know accurately, to know well. Hallelujah. So Jesus is very clear there. Nobody knows the Father except me, but let me reveal him to you. John 1, 17, 18. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came or were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, 
That is the correct translation. Who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him or exegeted him. And A, under the note there, where it says no one has seen God, the word seen in Greek means to see with the eyes, to see with the mind, to perceive, to know, to become acquainted with by experience. Man. I mean, there's a lot of people in the Old Testament you would think they were best buddies with Yahweh. But according to Yahweh himself, all they had were fleeting, dark-veiled images at best and didn't fully know him for who he truly was. And why was that? That's because man's heart and mind was darkened through the fall, through sin. And it, took a, it takes a new birth to give us the capacity to know God for who he truly is. God has to give us a nature like his own so we can understand him for who he truly is. Hallelujah. John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you and you've not yet come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Like Father, like Son. To see Jesus is to know exactly what Abba is like. And I think, is this the last one? Yeah, last one. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Powerful scriptures. It says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the ages. And he, Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory and, notice this, the exact representation of his nature. He is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, hallelujah, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Because he, they're done and gone, so now the high priest can finally have a seat. But notice that. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. All right. That's more or less a thumbnail sketch of all we could get into with these issues. Um, any questions, thoughts, or comments about any of this? This can be very challenging if it's a new way of thinking about Scripture to you, to anyone. Um, it can be very challenging, I guess. It's, it's very different from your typical Western, literalist, evangelical way of looking at things. But I think it's a much more faithful to Scripture way. Um, like in Calvinism, um, who harps on, no, it has to be just a literal historical interpretation all the time, every time, period. But it doesn't really mean anything. Because in the Calvinist schema, God is sovereign, their version of sovereignty, which is absolutely not biblical, authentic sovereignty. Not, not, nothing about God's nature can mean anything. Because he's sovereign and he controls everything. So he can, from any second to the next, he does anything he wants. He can love you today and tomorrow he can kill you with a car wreck. Nothing ever means, there's no consistency. And, and actually, Allah, the God of Islam, uh, is considered this same way. He can do anything, uh, just flippantly nothing. In other words, you never really know who he is. Because one day 
I have a I had a friend, one of my former Bible college students, um, when I worked at Norville's Bible College, um, New Life Bible College. Uh, one young man came there. He's actually in heaven now. He was a uh, he had sickle cell, uh, died as a young man, but a uh, wonderful guy, loved God, but he'd come out of a Calvinist system and somehow ended up at our totally non-Calvinist Word of Faith Charismatic Bible College, uh, probably because some friends of his were there, I guess, but um, we were talking one day and about God's sovereignty and so-called sovereignty in the Calvinist system, and one of us brought up the Holocaust. And his, he said to me, he said, so you don't think God had a purpose in the Holocaust and those millions of people dying? You don't think there was, God did that for some greater purpose? And my response to him was, I don't remember God having anything to do with it. I, last I looked, it was Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. I don't remember Jesus being there doing that. But to him, it, you know, if a baby is born and it grows up and is the best person ever, well, God did that, but if Hitler's born and he kills some six, maybe up to 20 million people, depends on, who. well, God did that. There's no consistency. And when there is no consistency in the nature of God, faith can't work like it should. Because faith is not, I hope so. Faith is not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. Faith is based on something that is substantially real and true. That's why faith is not hit and miss. That's why, well, I stood in faith, but it didn't work. There is no such thing as that. If I authentically stand in faith long enough and strong enough on the biblically-based promise of God, it will come to pass, period, no questions, because God is not flimsy, up and down, emotional, hit and miss one day after the next. Does that make sense? The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.